Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Susan Orlean on On Animals. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Animals in Nature, Humor, or True Crime category for episode number 180 with Mary Roach on Fuzz. This is Mary Roach. I'm the author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, and this is Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a best-selling author whose new book is another winner. It's called On Animals, and it's available now wherever books are sold. Susan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's a sunny, beautiful day here in Los Angeles, so I can't complain. Excellent. It's a sunny, beautiful, cooling-off day here in Austin as well, so I'm glad we're copacetic in that regard. This book, On Animals, uh, really expresses your love for animals. Why do you feel a sort of synchronistic connection to animals, one that has really been evident throughout most of your life? Part of the answer to that is is simply, I don't know. Hmm. I think people respond to things in their life. um, On some level, it's just a wonderful mystery. You just feel a connection. I think it's not uncommon that kids love animals just because they're cool and interesting and soft and fuzzy. And, um, you know, most children are very drawn to animals. And for me, it never went away. And I was a big horseback rider as a kid. So I had that relationship to them as a writer it's a very different aspect of my affection for animals. And, and in part, it's the feeling that you can tell a lot of human stories very interestingly through the lens of animals. But in addition, it's um, a feeling that there is this alternate universe that is here on earth with us that's very complex, that's very interesting, that brings out a lot of feelings um, from, you know, love to fear to everything in between. And that it's such an incredibly intriguing topic for, to me as a writer, that my own affection for animals gets coupled with this appreciation of the fact that it's such an interesting world to write about. You write that domesticated animals tend to interest you more than wild animals, but it's those animals that seem to straddle that tame versus untamed line that intrigue you the most. Why? That's where things get complicated. And (laughs) consequently, that's where things get really interesting. You know, wild animals are amazing. And, you know, I don't mean that to say that I, as a person, don't find wild animals interesting. They're also obviously hard to write about because if they're living the way they should be living, they're really out of our view and we don't interact with them. I mean, that's the the, the sort of ultimate ideal with wild animals is that they really do have their own lives in their own world 
domesticated animals or pets are of course interesting and I do write about them to some degree but where you get into the the kind of challenging human issues and the big moral issues is that gray area between animals that do straddle the line. What does it mean to be wild? What does it mean to be tame? What do we owe animals? What um, is there such a thing as repatriating a wild animal that has been tamed? And, you know, that becomes so interesting to me. It also touches on our own kind of the aspect of human life that is fundamentally animal you know our own feeling about what what have we done to the earth by becoming these domesticated creatures Hmm. um and it just it's it's the area that has the most complexity which is why i think Uh, even livestock interests me so much because they're not pets, but they're not wild. They're in this liminal space that's so fascinating, which is we have a relationship with them. They work for us. They in turn depend on us, but they're definitely not domesticated. I mean, when my husband and I had cattle, I was really struck by how wild they really are. I mean, they are not domesticated the way a dog is domesticated. They have a a pretty deep suspicion about people. And some of our cows became very used to us and would come up to us to get snacks. And some absolutely would not. You know, they're not dogs. They're really not. They remain in that kind of gray area where they obviously depend on us, but they don't entirely trust us and we can't entirely trust them because they're still fundamentally wild animals. In the case of a cow, that's a thousand pound creature that if it decided it just wanted to hip check you, that might be the end for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember when my son was about four and we had 10 black Angus. My son went into the pasture and without me realizing it. And then I looked up and he was running and the cows were all running after him. And he said, mommy, mommy. I mean, he was happy. Mommy, it's a stampede. And I freaked out because you know, if any one of those animals had knocked him over and stepped on him, that would have been it. He was delighted. He thought it was the most amazing thing in the world that the cows were chasing him. You can imagine this was a moment when their fundamental wildness really was driven home. And luckily he met, he got out without a scrape. And he thought it was the most fun he had ever had. And we had a little discussion about how it's not so good to go into the pasture with the cows. Um, but he was relating to them as, oh, these are 
these cool animals and I'm going to go visit with them. Yeah, I've got a five-year-old son at home. The start of that story just made my heart skip a beat there. Oh, (laughs) you can imagine. I mean, and you know how small five-year-olds are, especially next to a black Angus steer. I mean, you are, you barely reach the, their knee joint. I mean, the, it, it was a bit of a terrifying moment for me. What was your worst turned best Valentine's Day with some cat named Rick Lyon? Oh my God. This is an epic story, which I still, I still find astonishing each and every time I think about it. I had just started dating my now husband and this was our first Valentine's day together. He knew I loved animals. This was just something that emerged early on when we got to know each other. He said to me, Oh, for Valentine's day, I'm going to get us tickets to go see the lion King. And I thought, Oh, that's really so great. That'll be so much fun. And he said, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't get them for Valentine's Day, but that's my gift to you. And I said, fantastic. And then later on, he said, you know, we'll just kind of hang out at home for Valentine's Day. And my friend, my best friend, Rick Lyon, is going to drop by. And, you know, I was a little put off. It didn't seem that romantic to have a friend come by, but I thought I wouldn't complain about it. He then said to me, um, you should dress really casually. Again, I was a little <laughs> perturbed because I had spent some time dressing up and trying to look as pretty as I could. And he said, you know, just put on something more casual. And at that point, I was starting to get a little annoyed. I thought, I don't get it. I mean, it's Valentine's Day. I, I want to wear something nice. I don't want your friend coming over. But I kind of bit my tongue and went and put on jeans and a sweatshirt. And our doorbell rang. And I thought, all right, well, here comes Rick. And I guess I'm going to have as much fun as I can. And I, my husband opened the door and in walked a young lion being of course led by the man who was in charge of him but can i just say having a lion walk into your apartment is a once in a lifetime experience <laughs> and i i almost fell over and as you you can imagine all this build up and me being sort of annoyed and then later looking back and realizing the great irony of him saying to me, well, I got you tickets for the Lion King and my friend, his best friend really is named Rick Lyons. So that was not, I mean, it was a convenient coincidence. So this lion had been, um, just to give you a little backstory, My husband had been on a flight with a guy and they were chatting and my husband said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm, among other things, I have a a federal license for when endangered species or, you know, exotic species are surrendered. I, I take care of them until they can be placed somewhere. And my husband said, oh my God, well, my girlfriend, you know, 
just loves animals. Is there any chance you could bring an animal and surprise her? So this guy said, sure, why not? So that's where this animal came from. And he was a young, I think he was two years old. It was to be that close to a lion is unforgettable. They are, they have so much power and they are so beautiful. And I will also say it was the wildest animal I've ever been near. There was no, I, he looked at me dead on, which you're not supposed to do because if they lock their eyes on you, they are looking at you and sizing you up as prey. And this handler had said, don't get in front of him. But I sort of wandered in front of him just coincidentally and we locked eyes. And in his eyes was, there was no flicker of kind of, um, the way you feel when you look at a dog, where the dog looks at you and kind of acknowledges that you are one level up in the evolutionary chain. This animal looked at me and he was just measuring me as your prey and I'm the apex predator. And let me see how close you are and how much effort it would take for me to get you. And not in a hostile way, as much as in a pure intuitive way. And it was mind blowing. Um, I mean, I'm glad I experienced it. It was also kind of terrifying. It also was profound to realize that these creatures don't acknowledge us as above them on the evolutionary chain because they can kill us and in the world of animals whoever is better at killing the other animal really gets the top slot and in this case he just looked at me and thought you know you're you're pretty decent size but i could easily take you that was a, a an intense moment and one that I feel very lucky to have had because it was so profound. I am fascinated by big cats and you did spend some time in this book exploring those who have domesticated relationships with big cats or as domesticated as you can get with a lion or a tiger. For instance, you visited Kevin Richardson who a guy who the British newspapers labeled the Lion Whisperer back in 2007. How does someone get that comfortable with an animal that, as you just said, could so effortlessly rip any human to shreds? I do think it has to begin when they're very young. And, you know, I think there's a very basic fact that animals imprint um, when they're very young on whoever is taking care of them. So, you know, if you bought an adult, if you, you know, unfortunately it's, it is possible to buy a lion, not legally, but you can do it. If you bought a, an adult animal that had been captured as an adult, I rather doubt there would ever be that kind of comfort level. And, you know, I am not a zoologist, so I don't want to kind of talk above my pay grade here. <laughs> but I think from what I understand, it 
if you begin a relationship with an animal when it's very, very young and it becomes accustomed to you and relates to you as a caregiver and not as prey, that can evolve into the kind of relationship that someone like Kevin Richardson has. And the animals he had, he had gotten to know when they were cubs, you know, very young. They became accustomed to being handled by people. You know, on the other side of it, humans have to have a kind of confidence that most of us probably don't have. I mean, I've handled a lion cub. As soon as that lion cub would get strong enough to push back, I'm not sure that I would have the nerve to keep handling it. But Kevin Richardson did. And, you know, he he had developed a sense that he could relate to these animals as companions. I'm sure his confidence accounted in large part for why he was able to do it, that he didn't demonstrate fear and anxiety, which I'm sure animals that are predators would respond to. If you're scared, they probably think, hmm, I think this one, this one's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's very, you know, a lot of what interested me and obviously these stories, as much as they are about animals are very much about the people around these animals. And Kevin's mentality fascinated me as much as the animals themselves. What is it that gives someone that sense of comfort or what is it that makes someone feel they can relate to animals almost better than they can relate to other people? Hmm. Fascinated me. What is it about us that makes us want to have wild animals in our in our purview and this is something that unfortunately is um you know we see it over and over again people who want to possess wild animals that they really have no business possessing and kevin's case is a little different i don't mean to lump them into that category but but there is a a kind of fascination with having the wildest thing in our possession that is why there's a huge wild animal trade and that's why people at, um who have the wherewithal to do so often end up getting a a creature they should not have. There's a sense that they're displaying their power and their fearlessness. And it's, you know, it's, there's a pathology behind it. Hmm. 
You also explored one of the hardest working creatures on the planet, the mule. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, the mule is a result of a male donkey procreating with a female horse. And while part of me is disappointed that those who named this newfound creature, uh, they missed the low-hanging portmanteau that is a honky, we do still have the mule. What, uh, what impresses you most about mules, Susan? I love animals that work. I, I have just... a a huge affection and a kind of awe about toward animals that work and particularly unglamorous animals that work for us. And that we, we have a relationship again, that's not, they're not pets by any means, but we have achieved some kind of understanding with them. Mules also have a, there's a a sort of poignancy to a mule for me anyway, which is that they they're sterile. So mules do not have the ability to procreate. There's something about that singularity that, uh, you know, I, I sort of wondered whether mules knew that they, they're a one-off they, that they can't, create their own offspring and that gives them some sort of poignancy to me. Hmm. But the fact that they have served so tirelessly and without complaint in so many different capacities really fascinated me. Mules have been, uh, and what I was really focusing on was mules in the military, excuse me, in the military they had obviously been very central to the military in the days before mechanization, but they actually returned in an interesting way as we engaged in war in places with bad roads and mountainous terrain. No matter how sophisticated a tank you can build, a mule can still do it better. And I kind of love that. I'm, I'm really interested in those things that animals can do better than any technology that we've developed. And mules, mules can go over the mountain range in Afghanistan better, better than any tank, any armored vehicle that we've ever developed. I kind of love that. I love that we can't do better than the animal world. So the whole saga of mules in the military became one that was particularly fascinating to me. And the story focused a lot on a a kind of blunder um, during the early days of the war in Afghanistan in which the army decided to deploy several thousand mules to Afghanistan by um, purchasing them in Tennessee and then shipping them to Afghanistan, which sounds exactly as ridiculous (laughs) as it turned out to be. Uh, And it was, it was a crazy, crazy story. And it came at a moment when mules seemed to be completely in an, an anachronism. You know, they were unlike horses, which, will always sort of endure as 
um, sporting animals. Mules seem to have lost their footing, um, so to speak, in our culture. I mean, we no longer farmed with mules. They never caught on as much as riding animals as horses have. And they were kind of at their low ebb in in our culture, which is um, unusual because they had for so long been a really important creature to us. And then along came two really interesting phenomenons. Number one, the rediscovery of them as useful in the military. And secondly, the rise of Amish farmers who do farm without mechanization. Um, And the Amish population has grown exponentially in the last couple of decades, which is something I had no idea of, of. And they love farming with mules and suddenly mules became of a hot property again. So it was a a story that was both about mules, but it was also an interesting um, kind of cultural story about these two very different tropes uh, that happened to benefit mules very unexpectedly. Fascinating for sure. And final question, Susan. One of my favorite moments in this book is when you accurately point out that rabbits are the only animal we keep as pets, but also just as frequently either eat or wear. Considering people's abhorrence to the thought of eating a dog or cat, why do you think sweet, fluffy, cuddly rabbits aren't thought of in the same way? Well, isn't that an amazing fact? I Until this was brought up to me, I I had never considered that. And it really is a a strange and singular relationship to this species. You know, you could say, well, some people eat horses, but we don't keep horses in our home. Horses, we can love them, but they are not. It's it's really different from our relationship to rabbits where they literally can sleep in our bed. (laughs) But many other people look at them just as livestock, as a food source. And and at the same time, one of the odd things is that they've also never been completely identified as livestock. And I found this unbelievably interesting. I mean, doing this story was a revelation to me. Rabbit meat, which used to be very popular in the United States and is uh, popular around the world, has never been categorized as commercial meat. I mean, rabbits are not categorized as livestock Mm -hmm. in the United States, even though many of them are raised specifically to be used as meat. So rabbit meat doesn't get examined and certified the way beef and chicken does. And, and yet, I mean, which I found absolutely shocking and, and so strange, but they are the one species that we seem to not be able to figure out what our relationship is to them. And there are 
I think it's also interesting that there are so many wild rabbits, but then so many domesticated rabbits and a huge number of the wild rabbits are actually domestic rabbits that have gone wild. You know, people really not infrequently will have a pet rabbit and either they have too many or they don't want it anymore. And they just think, well, it'll be able to fend for itself in the wild and they let it loose. So there are species that are specifically wild rabbits, but there are tons and tons of feral domestic rabbits. And, and there's no other species that I think that we as regularly see in both categories. I think if you had a dog that you suddenly decided you couldn't keep, if you were a person of principle, you wouldn't just let the dog out and let it go wild. I mean, we all know that dogs probably can't fend for themselves in the wild. And, you know, there's some element of this. Look, there are a lot of cats that live sort of as feral cats, but rabbits, it's as if we see them existing in this completely uh, hybrid space between tame and wild, domestic and, and absolutely undomestic. It fascinated me. And I have to admit, I had never given a single thought to rabbits <laughs> before this story. I, I just didn't, I never had a rabbit. Um, when I was a kid, my cat would catch baby rabbits and I would try to save them, but I never had a pet rabbit. And my stepson has a pet rabbit and he's very devoted to it. And I realized that I had to really adjust my thinking because in the beginning I thought, why would you have a pet rabbit? It doesn't seem like a pet. And yet to them, it's just the same as having a cat or a dog. <laughs> it was a really interesting story to do and, and one where I learned an enormous amount. I loved it, and uh, gosh, we barely scratched the surface. There are so many other stories worth buying on animals for World Taxidermy Championships back in 2003, animal hoarding as a crime, pandas as very bizarre animals, and so much more as well. She is Susan Orlean. She is, of course, a staff writer for The New Yorker and a best-selling author. The new book is called On Animals, and it is as entertaining as advertised. Susan, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Join me next time when I speak with former FDA high-ranking official and expert on food safety and nutrition, Richard A. Williams on Fixing Food. An FDA insider unravels the myths and the solutions. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.